Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. I'm glad you're here. It's snowy as I write, but who knows how it will look on the last day of February when this episode drops. Happy birthday to my best friend in the second grade. Her family moved away the following summer. We were pen pals for a few years and then fell out of touch before randomly reconnecting at a conference I was coordinating decades later. And yet I still remember what day her birthday is. Go figure. Anyway, today we continue the Iliad portion of the Aeneid. We are up to book 10, and we'll see that it's the Aeneid at its Iliadist. When we last left our heroes, the Trojans and their Latin allies were fighting the Rutulians under the leadership of Turnus, and that's pretty much where we pick back up at the start of book 10. As a reminder, I'm working from the Fitzgerald translation. Book 10 opens on Olympus. Jupiter is not happy. He'd told his family not to interfere with the Trojans settling in Italy, and yet they've done just that, and look at what trouble they've caused. A war. A freaking war. Venus speaks up in defense of her son, of course. I mean, just look at Turnus, all puffed up like he's God's gift, when obviously Aeneas is the actual gift from the gods. And frankly, if Juno hadn't sent Electo to stir up trouble, none of this would have happened, so really it's Juno's fault. But whatever. At the very least, Jupiter should spare Ascanius, even if it means losing Aeneas. Can't, can't Jupiter at least cut the Trojans that much of a break? Juno doesn't take that comment about her being the fruit of the trouble lying down. Clearly, this is all Aeneas's fault. He's the outsider, not Turnus. Italy was peaceful until Aeneas and his army of Trojans showed up. Besides, it's clear that Jupiter has been taking Aeneas' side this whole time. Remember the Mer ships? That was all Jupiter. And now he's talking about how this war is the fault of all of the gods except for him? Yeah, Juno's not buying it. Jupiter raises his hands. It's too late now. The war has already started, so there's no sense in arguing over whose fault it is that there's a giant in our midst and my wife is dead. Wait, that's the baker and into the woods. Right. No, Jupiter says that they can't turn back time, so they have to let the war take its course, which means no more meddling, right? Right. Yes. I mean, we know Jupiter can say that all he wants, but we'll see if Juno and Venus bother to listen. Meanwhile, back on Earth, the Rutulians are fighting at every gate, and there is no hope of escape for the Trojans. And Aeneas still isn't back from his search for allies. But he has finally found some, and we get another bit of a catalog describing the men who are joining his company. Together, they sail back to Latium, and you're never going to guess who they meet on the way. The ship mermaids, or merships, or water tree nymphs, or whatever they are. Anyway, they swim up alongside Aeneas's ship and tell him that things aren't going well in the war and he'd better hightail it back. So he does, because that's how Aeneas rolls. Some sort of magical being tells him to do a thing, and he does it. They get home, and Aeneas, in his new Vulcan-made armor, is all bright and shiny and impressive-looking, and Turnus should be cowed by this, but he's not. 
After all, fortune favors the bold. And if you've heard that before, well, now you know where it came from. Rome's favorite poet, Virgil. And then the Aeneid goes full Iliad. We get a lot of fighting and a lot of descriptions of people killing each other, and I'm not going to recite all of their names, but it's just like the Iliad in that men achieve glory and are remembered because they die in battle and are therefore remembered in this poem. And then, Pallas. Sweet young Prince Pallas, son of Latinus. Pallas enters the fray. His primary opponent is another young man named Lausus. A reasonable match at first glance, but Pallas holds the upper hand. Juturna, Turnus' sister, does not care for this turn of events, and she begs her brother to go help Lausus. Turnus is happy to oblige. The only thing that he thinks could make it better would be if Latinus were here to see Pallas fall, because he's a jerk. Anyway, you remember when Patroclus dies? Yeah, that's the part of the Iliad that we've reached in the Aeneid. Pallas is the Patroclus of the Aeneid. He fights well, but he's no match for Turnus. And it takes several lines, but Ultimately, and despite calling out to Hercules for help, Pallas dies. Hercules, of course, as one of those gods up on Olympus, has been forbidden to help. Turnus strips Pallas of his belt as a prize, and Virgil tells us that Turnus will regret that action. After all, pride goeth before the fall, which is a different source, but that is what I wrote in my marginalia many years ago. Aeneas responds to the news of Pallas' death in a manner that may sound familiar to you. Kind of like another hero whose mother is a goddess. Like, say, Achilles after Patroclus dies. He goes on a rampage. He captures some men alive so that he can sacrifice them later, but most he just kills, even when they beg for mercy. And this is another section that goes on for a while. Meanwhile, back on Olympus, Jupiter tells Juno that it's clear that Venus must be helping the Trojans. And Juno asks him if that's true, then could she pretty please help Turnus take him from the battlefield? Jupiter grudgingly agrees, but only so that Turnus can live to fight another day. They may be gods, but even they are no match for fate. So you can guess what Turnus's fate is is. Anyway, here's how Juno does it. She creates a phantom Aeneas and drops him in front of Turnus as a decoy. Turnus falls for it and chases the decoy onto a boat that sails away. Turnus is livid when he realizes that he's clearly been tricked by the gods. He wants to keep fighting, but now he's stuck on this boat, sailing away from the battlefield. With Turnus currently trying to find his way back, Mezentius steps in to lead the Rutulians. He is impressive, and he fights well, and there's a lot more bloodshed, at least until Aeneas hits him in the thigh with a spear. Mezentius limps off the field to clean his wound, at which point we learn that his son is none other than the very Lausus who Pallas was fighting earlier in this book. Aeneas, of course, isn't done with Mezentius, but Lausus tries to protect his father and dies in his attempt. Aeneas pauses for a moment, seeing himself in Mezentius and his own son 
in Lausus. He chooses to honor the young man in death by not stripping him him of his armor, which, as you should know by now, is tradition. When Mezentius realizes that his son has been killed, he drags himself back to the battlefield. He does his best, but fails. With his dying breath, he tells Aeneas that no one liked him, not even the Rutulians, and he begs for a proper burial for both himself and his son. And the same grave will do. Just, just let let them be buried together. And Mesentius dies, and Book Ten ends. I know that I've said that I won't compare the Aeneid with Homer's epics, but I just can't help myself. So if you remember the events of the Iliad, you know that we're closing in on the end of the Aeneid. Our Patroclus stand-in, Pallas, is dead. Our Achilles stand-in, Aeneas, is back on the battlefield. Our... I'm sorry, I... I can't compare Turnus to Hector. Turnus is no Hector. Hector is... I love Hector. Okay, maybe if we saw more of Turnus at home, I'd be more sympathetic to him. But we don't, so even though he is serving the role of Hector in this part of the story, that's about where the comparison ends. And we only have two books left. We again see that the ongoing theme of the Aeneid is the role of fate in our lives. And the fates are apparently the most powerful beings. The gods may be able to take actions that fend off fate, but even they are ultimately powerless in the face of fate. Say that five times fast. Face of fate, face of fate, face of fate, face. Okay, that was a little bit easier than I expected. But we also see family in this book. Aeneas and Ascanius, Pallas and Latinus, Mezentius and Lausus. Only one of those sons survives this book, and it's the one who's going to be the father of Rome. Not the founder, of course, that story comes a few generations later, but his descendants will include Romulus and Remus. Anyway, even in this story of death and war, we see paternal love. And that gives this book a beauty that adds dimension to the brutality of all the bloodshed described. So it stands out to you in book 10. Pop over to the blog and share. It's at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL and maybe a link are in the show notes. Depends on your platform. Find me on Patreon as triumvirclio. That link is in the show notes too. Should you feel so inclined? No pressure. In the next episode, we'll cover book three, chapter two of the Bibliotheca. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.